Our children may be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. And for those of you that may be new to our church and have children, Pastor Christian will be doing our Children's Church today, and it's our emphasis in those that are three to eight years old. Um, We're not there to entertain them, but we want to put the Word of God in a context that is more to their level of understanding. So if that's helpful to you as parents, please take advantage of that. Our worship around the Word of God is going to begin with the reading of that Word. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in John chapter 7. If you don't have one, you should find a Bible in the chairs in front of you on the rack. John chapter 7, I'm going to be reading verse 14 down through verse 24, but make note that the focus of our attention are going to be in verses 14 to 18. But we'll read verse 14 down through verse 24. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus answered them, I I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's start with prayer, and then we'll go to our study. Father in heaven, we do appeal to you based on your grace, your mercy, and your promises, that by your Spirit you will be our teacher, that you will be our leader in truth, that you will be the one that opens our eyes, that gives to us understanding and discernment in the things of our God, and you are as well the Spirit that moves in our hearts to change, to transform, to sanctify, to give us a will to obey your word. So we pray to that end. Believers will be sanctified this morning, but we also ask that by your Spirit you will move among those that are not saved, perhaps those that are not sure of salvation or confused in regard to the faith they may have in the gospel or may not have. Father, it's, it's you that we appeal to, to make these things clear to us as we worship and we gather around the written word to acknowledge your majesty and your glory this morning. Let all things be done here this morning in this fellowship for your honor and your glory and for the sanctification of your church. We pray this in Christ. Amen. I want to just do a quick qualification because where we're going this morning is dealing with some rather significant truths of instruction and understanding. And it was my intent to do this study all the way through verse 24, but because of the importance 
of the verses that we are going to be looking at this morning, I chose to back off and to spend more time dealing with these instructions. And I want you to know in advance, some of them are not easy for us to hear, not necessarily easy for me to teach. And so if you go back to Matthew chapter 15, you see in Matthew 15, as Stephen read this morning, there are important principles that we're going to be looking at this morning, but also Jesus taught back in Matthew 15. But I note also, what the disciples observed, that those words being taught were offensive. And you picture the, the disciples coming up to Jesus afterwards and said, saying to him, do you realize that you are offending these guys? Imagine telling God, do you realize you are offending these people with your words? And I say that to make something of a qualification here. I make no apology for what I'm about to say. But if it hurts a bit, Please know that we speak these things in love to challenge us as believers and perhaps to get many of us here today to examine our own testimony of faith in Christ. Is it real? Is it genuine? Do I understand the gospel and the things of God? Prior to this study this morning, we looked at the previous 13 verses as Jesus concealed his presence and he openly said that that's what he was doing to his brothers, his biological family. But we know that Jesus going into Jerusalem, into this Judean area, meant trouble for him. It meant the protests of the people. The Jewish rulers who are considered experts in the law are going to protest. His own brothers did not believe in him. And we noted last week that the more Jesus exposed himself and made his presence known and revealed himself, the revealing of God to the people the more the hatred towards him increased. And that is an indictment against human depravity, is it not? The more sinful men see of God, the more they dislike. And that's exactly what we're giving testimony to again in this passage beginning in verse 14. And we see the contrast in verse 14 with this text against the previous one, where Jesus held himself somewhat covertly and quietly and discreetly, but now in the temple he comes and he publicly teaches. This is the context of where we're going this morning, and this will be the context of the rest of John's gospel, which spends the focus of its attention on Jesus' ministry now in Jerusalem. And we're in the final six months of Jesus' ministry prior to Calvary as we noted last week. So here in Jerusalem, Jesus has quietly entered the city somewhere after the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles has already begun. It's already underway. And midway in that point, according to what John writes in verse 14, Jesus enters the temple and he begins to teach. And Jesus said in verse 7, this is a public presentation whereby when people see me, when they hear of me, they're going to hate me. And as noted last week, this is what the sinful condition of man produces. So in writing this gospel account, John is connecting the Jerusalem visit to the visit that he wrote of back in chapter 5 where Jesus had healed that invalid by the pool of Bethesda. And you notice that Jesus references that here in the scriptures that I just read. And this led to a confrontation back in chapter 5. 
of the Jewish leaders with Christ that ended with them wanting all the more to kill Jesus because, as they said, he's making himself to be equal with God. Here it is now, nearly a year later, as we enter into chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews have clearly not forgotten about Jesus. They're looking for him. They're waiting for him to come to the feast. And Jesus shows himself midway through this week of festivities. Now, I've identified these uh, verses in our study according to what I see here. It may be a bit simplistic, but we're going to be focusing on instruction, biblical, spiritual instruction, those that hear that instruction or students, and those that proclaim that teaching or the teachers. And this is where our study picks up as Jesus becomes visible and as the Jewish community take notice of him. When Jesus taught in the temple, he was intentionally revealing himself to a hostile world that was challenging his credentials, a world that he knew was purposing to kill him. John writes of the Jews in verse 15, which typically, remember, is a reference to the Jewish leaders, the rulers of the Jewish religion. But as you bump ahead to verse 20, you notice that the crowds are also involved in this discussion. They've been pulled into this conversation. And to keep this all in context, if we back up to verse 12, where we were last week, we see that this crowd, this group in Jerusalem, was divided on what they think of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can understand that though Jesus stirs up the angers of the Jews here, they're not prepared to take immediate action because there is still something of a following that supports Jesus Christ. And we'll go on later in the chapter 7. You will note that the officers of the temple have a conversation with the Jewish rulers and there's something of a rather vain attempt to apprehend Jesus and it just completely falls apart because of this division. But what here in our immediate context in verse 14 takes these Jewish rulers off guard is that Jesus is teaching there in the temple as one who had been educated or trained in the things of God and they're not aware that he has any education. Now throughout the Gospels, we read time and again that as Jesus taught, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one having authority in the handling of God's word. And if you look at both Matthew and Mark, it adds that he taught with authority and not as the scribes. So there is a clear distinction between the biblical teachers of the day and Jesus as he enters the scene and teaches the Bible as well. And we're referencing here the Old Testament scriptures, of course. Now, we are not told what Jesus was teaching on. But it is most certainly instruction or was instruction from the word of God as our text implies. And we will see this as we move through our our study this morning. Now perhaps Jesus gave a fuller meaning as to the tabernacle feast and what it meant, what what are some of the implications of it. But as I look at John's gospel, and even throughout the other gospels, so often when Jesus had these teaching moments, he was taking the Old Testament scriptures, and he was pointing those words towards himself. He was revealing himself in the teaching of God's word. And I have no doubt that that is what he had done here as he entered the temple. Whatever the specific subject, 
Even the Jewish leaders are taken back by the understanding Jesus had with the things that they also taught. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures. And therefore they question one another. How is it that Jesus is able to teach as an educated scholar and yet we know that he's not gone to any seminary that we know of as we have? They had done some background investigation on Jesus apparently. They knew he was from Nazareth. And what good can come from there? We know he was a blue-collar worker. Are we supposed to pay attention to this guy that's just a mere carpenter? We know his dad, Joseph. This guy just works with his hands. What is he doing here in Jerusalem at this feast, teaching the things of God, and he has understanding? And I think that's perhaps one of the most puzzling aspects of this scene. Here are these Jewish leaders. They have taught the word of God. They've studied the word of God. They've gone to rabbinical schools. They recognize here is this uneducated man that has performed miracles. He's teaching the word of God with understanding and they are not drawn to that teaching. If anything, they're repulsed by it. Jesus is accurately handling the word of God, the word that they are skilled in. And they're offended by this. So we know at once as we look at verse 14 and the Jews throwing that question out into this crowd, it's loaded with condemnation. They're not affirming Jesus. They're not innocently asking the question because they've been so impressed by the knowledge of Jesus and his teaching that saying, wow, we need to know more about this guy. We need to hear from this guy. This is not the response that they're looking for. This is not at the heart of these Jewish people as they're asking this question. And we know this based on the content of Jesus' response to them. The question could well be interpreted this way. What does this uneducated guy think he is doing here? We're the ones trained. We're the ones that are schooled in the things of God. We're the ones who have devoted our lives to the study of Scripture and therefore the ones qualified to instruct the people. Who does this guy think he is? This question by the, the Jews in verse 15 is loaded with condemnation. This is a curious response, is it not? By those who claim to be skilled in the study of God's Word. This again, I believe, is an example to us in the teaching ministry that we may have with others or that we may have as a church corporately. We may be gifted to teach. We may be doing so with great discernment and care and understanding, handling the word of God accurately. But we must not expect unsaved people to be drawn to our teaching, even if we are very eloquent and very skilled at our presentation. The response by religious leaders to the teaching of God's Son should inform us that sinful men will not be drawn to the truth of the things of God and it should take us right back to chapter 6, shouldn't it? And verse 44, where Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. The way in which Jesus addresses the concern of the Jewish leader not only reveals the contempt and the jealousy that was on the hearts of these men, but it also affirms that Jesus was teaching the things of God from the Word, the Old Testament Scripture, given to men by God. 
And because of this, we find valuable wisdom from God in the whole ministry of biblical instruction. That's where we're going to set up camp this morning. We're going to focus on three principles of spiritual instruction that Jesus himself gives to us as a church. And it begins with instruction that must be sourced from God. Now, I know that I am preaching to the choir, so to speak, here, because we are a church that focuses on the authority, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't do it perfectly, to be sure. But it is our aim. It is our focus. It is our purpose in the teaching ministry. But we must see the points that Jesus makes are so powerful and profound, we cannot dismiss what he's saying too quickly here because they may be convicting for even Summit Park Church. Jesus begins by telling these condemning Jews that the teaching that he had been giving to this group was not his own, but it came from the one who sent him. Now you need to put yourself at that moment in the temple. Jesus walks in, in the middle of the feast, there's all this activity and movement because uh, travelers got come from all over Israel and even beyond to celebrate this feast. Jesus enters the temple and perhaps he sees a group that is seated over in the corner to the side and he can see they're having a discussion on the word of God. So he comes over, standing perhaps on the periphery at first, but then seating himself and becoming part of this discussion. And the moment that Jesus introduces his views, I can see him taking captive this moment. And he becomes the teacher. The Jews are not far away though. And they're hearing this. And they're amazed at his understanding. And so they begin to audibly question the credentials and the authority of Christ. And I say audibly because Jesus hears it. And in verse 20, the rest of the crowd is drawn in to this discussion. So this was not a discreet questioning of Christ. They're very verbal, very vocal about it. And these are Jews that wanted to kill Jesus then on account of the claim that he was making himself equal with God. That still holds true at this moment. Jesus has now returned to Jerusalem. The Jews have heard him preach. He repeats again that he is not speaking his own words, but the words that he's been given by the Father in heaven. This declaration is not meant to suggest that the Son of God is kind of empty in his mind until God speaks to him, or that Jesus doesn't know what he believes until God tells him what he believes. Rather, what Jesus is again affirming, as he has before, is that he and the Father are one. He does not act independently. He does not act autonomously from the Father. He comes having been sent by God. And he's preaching and teaching the words from God. Now I think a point has to be made here in regard to Jesus' instruction and what he's heard from God. Such teaching, whatever he was teaching on, whatever the subject, it didn't come from rabbinical schools and it didn't come from seminaries. And I think this is important for us to see here at, at the outset. Because as you know, I don't have a seminary background. If I could go back and redo things, I probably would. 
because I'd love to have that kind of instruction and that kind of education. But it is important to note from the words of Christ that seminaries do not produce preachers and teachers. The Spirit of God alone does that. He's the one that calls. He's the one that gifts. The seminaries educate. They equip. But they cannot call. And I do believe there is a problem in America with seminaries and the relation of pastors and and the implementing of those pastors in churches is that far too many times people say, I want to be a preacher. They go to seminary, but it's never been discussed. Are they qualified by the Spirit of God to do this? Has God called them? Has He gifted them? And hence we have in the pulpits today a lot of people that probably should not be there. Seminaries cannot produce preachers and teachers. That's the work of the Spirit of God alone. What Jesus is declaring to these Jewish leaders is that his message has come straight to him from God, that Father and Son will both reveal truth. If they hear Jesus teach, they're hearing God teach. Jesus did not learn this stuff from human resources. His source is God himself which again brings us to the source being the Word of God. He's gotten this from the Word of God itself. And it begs the question, how did Jesus come to this place of understanding the Word of God with such authority and clarity? How did Jesus gain this knowledge of Scripture? Would it be correct to say it's because he's God? Because Jesus is God. Does this mean that he had all knowledge and understanding in the things of God? We've already seen on several occasions that Jesus knew the hearts of men. He knew those who were believers. He knew those who did not believe. At the same time, if you go back to Luke chapter 2, and we look at the 12-year-old Jesus, it says of him on two occasions, he was growing in wisdom and in favor with God and men. The Son of God was learning. He was growing. At one point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, as he's ministering and speaking of the things that are yet to come, he says that only the Father knows the timing of these things. The angels don't know it. And he said, even the Son of God does not know, but only the Father. So here Christ, in his earthly ministry, the incarnate Son of God has limited himself in some way and in some measure when it comes to the omniscience, the all-knowing character of God. We know that when Jesus stepped out of heaven and he took on flesh, he set aside, he willingly set aside his divine prerogatives or privileges. And he was born as a human baby. Jesus was not born fresh out of the womb speaking biblical truth. In fact, he didn't speak. He had to learn to speak. He had diaper issues like any of us did back then. He cried. He grew in understanding. They taught him and educated him on the things of God early on. His parents would have. The teachers, the synagogue leaders. At the same time that Jesus expressed that in his incarnate state, 
that he knows all things. At least it seems there are times when Jesus didn't know all things. And that's a hard concept for me to understand. And I can't go much further than that. But in the incarnate state of Christ, he learned. He grew in his discernment. How did he grow? How did that take place? Like in our church, we teach our children the word in Sunday school, in Juana, in our homes, in our children's church. They're growing in their understanding. So did Jesus Christ. Even at the age of 12, it was said of, by the Spirit of God that he was growing in his understanding and wisdom and in favor with God and men. As an adult, pre-glorified Christ, he didn't know the timing of everything. There is a mystery here of sorts to the knowledge and understanding of Jesus in his incarnation. But I picture this as a man, even a boy, that studied the scriptures and the spirit of God was active with this one. We know that from the prophecies of Messiah. He learned from God. He studied the scriptures. And by the time he's sitting here in this temple scene, He's teaching directly from God because he knows the word of God. He's read, studied the word of God. He's been taught by the spirit of God. So that what he has taught is not his own. He has received it from God, the Father in heaven. And how that all accomplished between father and son, I don't know. Because there is again something of a mystery in the incarnate God that was learning the things of God. Even to say that is puzzling, isn't it? He learned. But as Jesus now declares to these religious rulers, what I have received, I have received from God. Or what I teach, I have received from God. That would have cut to the heart of these Jewish leaders, convicting them of their own instructional role in Israel. They were supposed to be the ones that there were authorities on God's teachings. But here they were contradicting Jesus, who was telling them that he taught only the truths that belonged to the God who sent him. His word from God is being contrasted with their word, which was based on tradition and the understanding of men. But as long as they hear Jesus teach, they were hearing the word of God. Now later in John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples that when he leaves, He's going to send his spirit to do for his people what Jesus had been doing for them when he was present in teaching the word of God. Here, John 16, verse 13. But when he, Jesus speaking here, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? It is to take the things of God and teach them to the people of God. This is exactly what Jesus was doing as he's seated there in the temple and he's instructing this crowd. True, biblical, spiritual instruction must be sourced in God himself. Truth is going to be found in his word. It's going to be taught to his people by his spirit when the word of God is taught, when it is preached. And this brings us to a second principle that is instrumental in the teaching and instruction of God's word. Students, those that are hearing this teaching, those that are being taught, must surrender to God's will. 
Jesus continues this explanation. So Jesus answered, verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak on my own or by myself. So Jesus is continuing to answer the Jewish rulers of Jerusalem by showing what it means to be a true student under God's teaching. He's exposing something of the secret of learning here, the learning that we receive from God, showing how and where these Jewish men had failed. They had become accustomed to living life on their own terms, even living the spiritual life under the law according to their own will and in a way that appealed to their own sensibilities. So Jesus communicates here, really he's communicating to all of us a significant principle in learning biblical truth of knowing when God's truth is being taught. And I want you to notice and highlight the aspect of practice if anyone is willing to do God's will. This is not a matter of knowing what we agree on but a matter of our will to obey. We need to understand the distinction Jesus makes here. It is important for us to affirm together what we agree on. But Jesus here is focusing on our will to obey him. Those who seek to walk in obedience according to God's will, these are the ones that will discern the truth of God as it's being taught. They'll know the truth. It'll connect with them. They'll identify it right away. They'll recognize the truth that is coming from God. Why? Because their will has been surrendered to live obediently to God himself. Verse 17, he will know the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I, Jesus, speak from myself. Jesus did not speak independently from God, but only taught what was from his Father, because the Father and the Son are one. His handling of God's word and God's laws were done in a way that accurately handled the word of truth. Remember that these Jewish leaders were also teaching the word of God. They were teachers, scholars, and students of the Old Testament scriptures, but they were not doing so in a way that exposed the truth of God. They were not doing so in a way that led the people of God to walk according to his will. Because those who desire to walk in the ways of the Lord will listen to the Son because he comes with the truth that the Father has given to him. The will of this kind of believer then has been activated by the Holy Spirit. I did not put this in your notes, but this morning as I was going over this part of my sermon, I felt compelled that we have to turn back or forward to Romans chapter 8. I don't think we're going to fully understand the impact of Jesus' words as he's talking to biblical educators there in Jerusalem. These religious rulers. We're not going to understand the impact of his words about complying and submitting and surrendering to do or to practice the will of God until we hear from the Apostle Paul. And clearly you can hear from Paul's words, he understood exactly the principle and the doctrine that Jesus was teaching here in John 7. But look with me at verse 5, Romans 8. Paul writes, For those who are according to the flesh 
set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That is an offensive remark because what it's telling us is that those are living contrary to God's will and are living by their own fleshly appetites and desires. They are hostile to God even if they're claiming to be Christian. Even if they claim, I've been born again. Even if I claim I'm a Jewish scholar teaching in the synagogue. Hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is now focusing our attention on the will of God, the desire, the passion, the pleasure of God. However, verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed, I'm talking to believers, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We go back to John chapter 7, and now we discern what Jesus is talking about. The person that wills to live not according to their flesh and their own desires and their own passions and doing life their own way, but those who are committed to do the will of God are doing so not because they have great discipline, but because that's the activity of the Spirit. And that's how you know you belong to Jesus. The Spirit is active. He's leading me. We don't do it perfectly. I know that. But is my life marked by doing the pleasure and the will of God? Or is it marked by pursuing my own passions and pleasures? Because if we're doing that, if we're following our own passions and pleasures, we're not Christ's. If we belong to Christ, we have his spirit and his spirit leads us. My will has been changed. Before Christ, I did what I wanted. I did what I pleased. I did what I desired. The moment I come to faith in Christ, God changed my will. I didn't do it by my own discipline. Where the spirit is active, he is leading. And where he is leading He's going to instruct his people. This has to begin the moment we come to faith as true believers. And this is why John chapter 7 is speaking to those that are true followers of Christ because only believers have embraced God's will to trust in the one whom God has sent. To reject the only Son of God is to reject God's will that all men believe in his Son. It has to begin here. Faith in Jesus Christ. It is God's will that men believe in Jesus Christ, who was sent by God, but not merely to believe up here in Christ, 
But the will has been transformed such that I follow Christ. I listen to his words. I want to do what Jesus tells me to do. And if we're still over here leading our life by our own terms, by our fleshly desires, we're not his. We can't be. And the word of God be true at the same time. And this is why I challenge you here this morning, if you happen to be a believer, carefully examine your life. Are you still led by the flesh? Or are you led by the Spirit? Don't leave these things to chance. This would be a good time to surrender yourself entirely to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let Him be the Lord and Master. Let Him transform your will so that you might do the will of God and be led by His Spirit. It was no surprise to us, I think, that in our modern times there is so much doctrinal confusion and divisions within what is called the Christian community. Even clearly, clearly taught biblical doctrines and truths are being questioned and debated and often rejected in the context of the Christian church. Whether we're talking about marriage or sexual identity or leadership roles in the church, we are seeing a terrible revolution in the church where doctrinal confusion and divisions seem to abound. And the reason that Jesus gives for this is that these truth debaters do not have the desire to do the will of God. They prefer to live according to their own terms, driven by their own will. Is this not characteristic of our present culture? Those who call themselves Christian very often want to wear the title of Christ because it gives them a sense of security. But they don't want to submit to his word. They don't want to submit to his reign or his rule. They live for their own pleasure, live by their own impulses. They establish their own system of truth or their own religious views. They set their own standards of Christian conduct. And very often, this independent lifestyle is being marketed under the idea of Christian liberty. But it's a perverted view of the liberty that we have in Christ. It was said of Augustine that he established a rule that whenever he came to a passage of God's word that he disagreed with, he concluded that he was wrong and he submitted to the teaching of God's word. We need more men and women in the church like that. Because I'll say honestly, there are certain passages that I come to that I pull back from. What God needs in my heart and in my will is a man that will submit to him even when I think it's wrong or it doesn't make sense or that can't be reasonable. To submit to the will of God. Such a will within believers produces an even greater devotion to biblical truth because God reveals it to them further. And you can see how it will be encyclical. Once God has transformed my will and I hear the word taught I recognize it as truth and I submit to that will and I'm growing, being sanctified. If I'm going backwards the other way, more and more to the pleasures of my own heart, something's wrong with that picture. Because what Jesus is identifying here is those that have submitted and surrendered their own will to the will of God. They're the ones that are hearing and discerning truth. They're learning by it. They hear the word of God. And their will is progressively surrendering more 
to the authority of Jesus Christ in their life. One scholar put it this way, according to Jesus, the key to recognizing God's truth is not found in a book or taught in a seminary. It is found in our hearts. He, speaking of Jesus, says that those who seek to do the will of God will know God's truth when the word is preached. Because the will's been transformed. That's what the Spirit of God does when he causes us to be born again. The conflict that Jesus addressed with these Jews is that even though they held to the law, even though they studied the Old Testament Scripture, they did not recognize the truth of of God that Jesus was preaching because they did not have the will to do the will of God. As religious and as devout as they may have been, they were living life according to their own determinations, their own wills. And this brings us to a third principle, equally important when it comes to spiritual instruction. And the focus of attention here is now on the teacher. We've considered the instruction itself that it must be from God. We've considered the student that must have a will that surrenders in submission to God's word. But here now a word is said to the teacher, and I refer to verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This declaration by the Lord would have again been a painful indictment for these Jewish rulers. He is charging these teachers with seeking their own glory because they're speaking on their own. They've stepped outside of the authority of God's word, even in teaching God's word. How did Jesus know this? It's because these Jewish teachers were speaking from self and not from God. And we must again realize that these men were speaking Old Testament Scripture to the people. They were, they were quoting the Old Testament Scripture to the Jewish community. They were handling God's Word to be sure, but not in a way that glorified God. It glorified them as teachers. They had taken the word of faith and they had turned it into the word of human merit. These teachers were teaching with God's word in a way that made sense to the sinful inclinations of mankind. Their teaching appealed to man's self-esteem. It promoted the righteous works of men, which could never be righteous in the eyes of God. They had added their own traditions to the written word, promoting their own human reason, and had declared that such traditions are now the commandments of God, equal to the word of God. That's exactly what Jesus charged back in Matthew 15. Why do men and women who call themselves Christians stray from the clear and truthful teaching of God's word, even twisting truth to say something different or something strange or something contrary to what is written? In the Bible. Why do we hear teachers say, that's how the scripture reads, but let me tell you what it really means? Why do we hear some teachers tell their listeners, this part of God's word you can believe, but over here not so much? Why do some teachers of the Bible give greater weight to the sciences of man than to the science of the creator God himself? Jesus answers by saying, such teachers are seeking their own glory and not the glory of the God who sent Jesus Christ. The teacher who would speak God's truth 
is going to bring glory to God, the God of Christ, the God of the Bible, the God of creation. And notice how Jesus continues this in verse 18. The teacher who would glorify God will show God to be the gospel sender of his son. You can't separate the son from the father. The teacher that is faithful to the word is seeking to glorify the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ. And what about Jesus? They're going to be declaring he, Christ, the son of God is true. In him is found righteousness. You can't find it in men. These teachers will only instruct the righteous will of God to those who seek to do that will. What a contrast to what is so often seen today in Christian teaching. I think our culture abounds with teachers claiming to be religious or even claiming to be Christian who seek the glory of self. And this self-glory is exposed by how they handle the word of God, by how they present God, how they identify the attributes and the nature of God and the nature and attributes of his son, the one that God sent. Like Jesus Christ, faithful teachers of God's word are always going to seek to glorify God as they instruct the truth of God in a way that takes the glory from self and it points it towards the one who alone is to be worshipped by men. And that's how we can recognize a teacher from God. Are they bringing glory to themselves? Or are they bringing glory to God? A story I remember well of Charles Spurgeon was at the end of, apparently at the end of one of his sermons, a woman came up to him and said to him, you are the finest preacher that ever was. And I wish I had this kind of quickness of wit, but Spurgeon immediately responded by saying, I know, madam. Because Satan whispered it in my ear as I walked away from the pulpit. You see the point that he's trying to make. We all desire to be recognized as great teachers. And it can be our temptation to hear that kind of flattery and think, aren't I wonderful? Or to even craft a sermon that draws attention to me. Or to come up with something new that sets me apart from the biblical teachers of the church. And it draws attention to me. The new perspective on Paul, you've heard of that. Well, this in case would be the new perspective on God's word. And let me tell it to you. If it's new, it ain't of Jesus. It is therefore a significant principle for Christian teachers that they seek the glory of God who sent Jesus Christ because they're promoting his son. They're promoting the truth of Christ. They're promoting the righteousness of Christ. And Christian teachers must always be on guard against seeking their own glory. And those who put themselves under Christian teachers, that's speaking of you here in listening to me. You've got to be careful to hear only from those who are seeking the glory of God. And if I'm not doing that, you better come and confront me. Because you shouldn't be, shouldn't be sitting under that kind of teaching. Now, we're going to bring our study this morning to a close at this point. But it is my hope that by now the application of what we see in this text is becoming very clear to us. And you will see in my three summary points, they haven't strayed very far from the previous points that I've made. It is so necessary that we understand and apply the things 
that God says to us from his word. And given the pervasive problem of variant teachers, of aberrant teachings and doctrines in our present church culture, it is so critical that we let God's word set the standard for truth in his church. So number one, just in bringing this to a summary close, examining these principles, we must teach what God has declared. The emphasis, it's on God's word. You're filling in the blanks. What is the emphasis in that statement? God's word. The voice of God has got to be our source of truth. And I know this may seem very simplistic to a church that is committed to the proclamation of God's word to the authority, the inerrancy of God's word. But if we look around the Christian marketplace today, we see a system of instruction that assigns a certain but limited place of importance to God's word. In other words, the word of God is blended with other stuff. This is not true of all teaching ministries, but I would argue that the majority of what is presented today as Christian instruction is the blend of God's word carefully mixed with man's wisdom, man's sciences, man's psychology, and man's genius, his academic accomplishments. It was no different with the Jewish leaders that Jesus rebuked here. When he affirmed that he spoke only what came from his Father in heaven, he's speaking to men that had taken the word of God and they were preaching themselves through that word. Do you think it's going to be any different for Christian instruction today? We must be on guard in this area. The source of truth is only from God. Second, we walk as God directed. The emphasis, God's will. The emphasis must be on the purposes, the pleasure, the desire of God. And are we found there? Is that my Christian identity? Has my will been changed to conform and submit entirely to his will? If we are a true follower of Christ, our will must be transformed if we are to understand even what I am preaching to you today. If it is our desire as believers to understand and apply the word of God, it's only going to happen as we surrender our will to be obedient to Christ, to live according to his pleasure. And again, our present culture is immersed with people who claim to be Christian but only pursue their own desires and purposes. They may attend church from time to time. They may feel bad about their sins on occasion. They may pray to God when they're feeling desperate or their life is in trouble. They may read the scripture and they may do it every day as part of their personal devotions. But they're never going to truly know the things of God as revealed in his word until they kneel before him in submission to his will. And I say that because the lordship of Christ is not a secondary matter. God's will, are we submitting to it? Third, we must minister God's word for his glory, and the emphasis here must be God's worth. The motive to teach is God's worth, not ours. For those who would hope to be teachers of God's word, the principal motive of the heart must be to exalt God and not self. It must bring the glory and the majesty of God himself to light, the majesty of his son, the truth of his son, the righteousness of his son. Because those who truly seek the glory of God will not speak from themselves, 
They're going to go right to the Word of God. They're going to teach, proclaim, and preach the truth of God. They'll teach the truth of Christ who was sent by God. They'll teach that God and Christ, they are true. And they stand together in that truth. They'll look to the righteousness of God that is found in Jesus Christ and declared by His gospel. What Jesus has taught here in John 7 is as important to those who are being instructed as to those that are doing the instruction. So this speaks to me as a preacher, Sunday school teachers, as teachers, counselors, as you proclaim the word of truth. But it speaks just as much to the one listening, learning, and being educated by that truth. We must not allow ourselves to sit under the teaching of those who are speaking from themselves and not from God's truth because they're only seeking their own glory. This passage is meant to give the listener discernment as much as it is identifying the true teacher that is from God. Friends, this is really a message for us today. These are three critical principles of biblical instruction that must be the character of what we are as a church and how we teach and how we minister the word of God. And we're learning these principles from the master himself, Jesus Christ. Father, we close now praying in the name of your Son, giving thanks to you for showing us your truth through your Son. Thank you, Father, for drawing us to yourself, transforming our will so that we can even understand these things. But we confess we will need the power of your Spirit to do them, to practice them, to live them and depend on them. It is always our inclination to pursue our own desires and lusts. It's always our inclination to seek our own glory. So we pray, Father, that you will continue patiently and persistently working on us as a church community and as individuals, bringing us into a greater sanctification in these critical areas when it comes to the instruction, the communication of your word. And we pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.